everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. Like I assume most of you, I've been watching a lot of 70s Turkish action cinema lately. And I was thinking about the movie The Deathless Devil. You know, the one where Dr. Satan builds an evil robot to help him take over all the machines in the world, but gets thwarted by the playboy superhero Copperhead? Of course you do. Well, I was thinking about Dr. Satan, and where he might have gone wrong. Now clearly, the guy did a lot of things right. He built a pretty decent killer robot, he's got a hell of a mustache, and his evil maniacal laughter is on point. And look, there are always going to be some unforeseen incidents. I don't think anybody would have predicted that Copperhead would have inherited his famous father's superpowers. But you control the things that you can, right? And the one area where I think Dr. Satan could be really upping his supervillain game is, kind of surprisingly, his name. I mean, yes, on the surface, Dr. Satan, great villainous title. I mean, if there is one name that is almost literally synonymous with evil, it's Satan. So, no notes on that part. And I understand that Dr. Satan is clearly a man of learning. He is justifiably proud of the hard work he has done to earn his degree, and he wants to be addressed in a way that reflects that. But I think what Dr. Satan is maybe failing to take into account is that over the years, there are a number of pop culture icons that have significantly diluted the value of the honorific title Doctor. I mean, for every Dr. J, who clearly holds a legitimate PhD in slam dunkology, there's a Dr. Pepper. What's their doctorate in? Being a prune-flavored soda? That's a master's program at best. And what about Dr. Detroit? Does he really have a doctorate in being a supervillainous pimp? No, although that's maybe a bad example because his alter ego is a professor of comparative literature, so probably does hold a secondary degree. Which actually brings me around to my suggestion for a modification to Dr. Satan's name. Professor Satan. You still get an honorific title. You're clearly interested in education because you keep dropping fun facts, like after you order your evil robot to kill that one guy and you set his house on fire and then you stand there laughing and say, ha ha ha, fire destroys everything. Plus, if you want to establish yourself as being evil right now, I think distancing yourself from the word doctor is the way to go. Doctors are well-regarded right now, and healthcare workers are considered heroes. So, I really think Professor Satan is the way to go. I mean, who doesn't hate learning? Not this guy. I don't not hate learning. Wait. Yeah, no, that's right. So, that's my advice for you, Professor Satan, from the movie The Deathless Devil. I hope it was helpful, and that you don't, Send your evil robots to murder me. Hugs and kisses, your pal, Hub. Now, we have a heck of a lot of comic book to cover today, so without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Osvaldo Oyola. 
I came in the door. I said it before. Magnetism is hypnotic like a disco floor. It's attracting me, distracting me, inviting me to diss. I can't hold it back. My snarky synopsis. Eating that fart. Clearing my throat. This podcast will be kicking it until we hit the last note. Thanks, Osvaldo. I did indeed take a lot of notes for this podcast, and we will be kicking it until we hit all of them. To that end, New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 18, March 1986. Homecoming. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Eduardo Barreto, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call, Starfire, Jericho, Nightwing, Beast Boy, Cyborg, Wonder Girl, Raven, a little bit, and Zack Wingman, although he may not count, seeing as he's probably over a thousand, so technically not a teen, and also he was never really a member and doesn't like the Teen Titans. Okay, so as I'm saying that out loud, he definitely isn't part of the roster. He does appear in the comic, though. Previously in the New Teen Titans. After being jilted by former Teen Titan and current Greek goddess Lilith, the amnesiac alien angel who Corey and I like to call Zack Wingman had been flying around the planet yelling at the sky about his feelings. Eventually, the forgetful flying fellow bumped into Mother Mayhem, the perfidious pontiff of that strangely sanguinary sinister sect, the Church of Blood. Mother Mayhem told the winged wanderer that his name was Azrael, and that if he came with her, she and her evil cult would help him figure out who he was and what his place in the world was. That seemed like a pretty sweet deal to Zack, so he and the alliteratively monikered matriarch headed to the Church of Blood's headquarters in Buzzard Bay, Massachusetts. And Zack was not the only former ally of our titular teenagers whose services Mother Mayhem intended to acquire. Ever since she saved the world by killing her demonic bad dad who used to live in her bird-shaped soul tummy, Raven had been missing in action. The Azerathian empath's mom, Arella, searched all over for Raven, eventually locating the absent avian-themed adolescent in a Louisiana leper colony, where the locals had tied her up and were forcing her to treat their wounds. Arella was about to free her distressed daughter, but before she got the chance, acolytes of the Church of Blood showed up and murdered all the denizens of the leper colony and took Arella and Raven as their prisoners. Bummer. Also, Beast Boy's adopted father, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, had been having a rough time. The put-upon plutocrat had long struggled with a debilitating addiction to wearing a reality-warping science hat that he called the Mentos Helmet, so I call the Freshmaker. Despite what the Magic Hat's name might imply when Steve donned the Freshmaker, he did not feel fresh, feel cool, and things did indeed get to him. Steve had forgone use of the habit-forming headgear for a seemingly significant amount of comic book time when a fast-talking British mage named John Constantine recruited the recovering hat addict to put on the Freshmaker and make some guest appearances in Crisis on Infinite Earths and Swamp Thing. After these exhausting cameos, the beleaguered billionaire went bananas. Steve started wearing the Freshmaker all the time and threatened his employees and associates. When Beast Boy confronted his frenzied father figure about this hat-inspired mania, Steve tried to kill Beast Boy, which seems reasonable, and the rest of the Titans, which is a bit excessive. The Titans managed to thwart Dayton and his kill-craze-conducing cap, but before they could apprehend the adult entrepreneur, Steve escaped into the sewers where he unwound by blowing up some rats with his mind. 
Also, also, there was a crisis on Infinite Earths that almost destroyed the entire multiverse. But mostly... After years of living in exile, Starfire received word that she was finally free to return to Tamaran for a visit. Coriander's father, King Meander, had sold the spicy space princess into slavery when she was twelve to appease a race of gassy space lizards. Starfire eventually managed to escape her captors and join the Titans. Hooray! Now that her planet's war with the farty slave-mongering Godzillas had concluded, Meander sent a spaceship helmed by the intrepid Captain Carass, who we call Captain George Papadopoulos, for reasons that I only vaguely remember, to retrieve his daughter. Overjoyed at the prospect of a family reunion, Starfire, accompanied by her boyfriend Nightwing and their pal Jericho, boarded Captain Papadopoulos's ship and made the long space commute to Tamaran. But... When the trio of Titans reached their destination, they learned that King Meander had an ulterior motive for his invitation. The milk-toast monarch planned on once again trading his daughter's autonomy for political leverage. Ever since that war with the fart lizards had ended, Tamaran had been in the throes of a bloody civil war. Meander had arranged for Coriander to marry Captain Papadopoulos, whose father was the king of Tamaran's southern states, in hopes that their marriage would unify the warring factions. Coriander wasn't crazy about this plan, and neither was Papadopoulos, but both agreed to proceed with the wedding for the sake of Tamaran. Dick was understandably upset at the prospect of his girlfriend's coerced betrothal and stormed off to sulk. Jericho and Starfire's younger brother, Reander, attempted to distract the distraught do-gooder by taking him on a tour of the planet's agricultural centers. Under normal circumstances, an educational survey of extraterrestrial farming practices would be a dream come true, but this excursion failed to jostle Dick from his doldrums, partly because his depression was too deep, and partly because they ran afoul of an army of rebels led by Coriander's purportedly deceased evil sister, Princess Commander, a.k.a. Blackfire. Blackfire captured the trio of agricultural enthusiasts and held them prisoner just long enough to treat them to an exposition dump about her plans to conquer the planet, before the heroes made their daring escape. The three adventurers hurried back to the planet's capital intent on warning Meander and his forces about his not-so-deceased daughter and her imminent attack. But when they arrived, Starfire's wedding was underway, and they all either got distracted or decided they didn't want to interrupt. After noticing Dick's arrival, Coriander was disappointed that he did not attempt to interfere with the ceremony, and dejectedly proceeded with the wedding. As part of the service, the bride and groom briefly combined their souls and Voltroned into a single genderless being. As soon as the presiding space yeti declared Starfire and George Papadopoulos to be man and wife, Commander's forces invaded the chapel. Dick, Joe, and Ryander were like, Oh right, the invading army, our bad, and joined in the battle. But it was too late. Though our heroes struggled valiantly, the rebel forces were triumphant. Commander took the rest of the royal family prisoner and declared herself the new queen of the planet. In her first act as Tamaran's commander-in-chief, Blackfire held a press conference announcing that although she politically opposed her father's rule, she loved her misguided family and intended to send them to the warlords of Okara so that they would be safe and could be retrained as warriors and hopefully see the error of their ways. Then the duplicitous despot loaded her mom, dad, brother, and sister onto a spaceship and televised its launch. As Dick, Joe, and George Papadopoulos watched from their prison cell, Commander pushed a button on a detonator and exploded the ship, announcing tearfully to the planet that her family had just been killed by a terrorist attack perpetrated by fart lizard sympathizers. Gadzooks! Is the royal family really dead? Will our spacefaring titans return to Earth and reunite with the rest of the team?
And what daunting task could keep Wonder Girl from helping her imperiled teammates? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, of course not. Some of them will. And her husband Terry wants her to do his homework for him. Damn it, Terry! Jericho, Nightwing, and George Papadopoulos are horrified and enraged as they watch Starfire's spaceship explode. Dick is so upset that for perhaps the first time in his nearly 19 years of life, he says a swear word. I know! The enraged acrobat calls Commander the B-word. The evil princess is apparently not a big fan of gendered insults. The slighted supervillain zaps Dick with one of her magic space fire punches. Fair enough. As the agonized adventurer nurses his wounds, Blackfire is like, Hey, if it makes you feel any better, at least I murdered your girlfriend before she fucked her new husband. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this does not seem to make Dick feel any better. The evil queen leaves to go get some work done, and Dick and Papadopoulos bond over what an asshole commander is and the fact that they both want to kill her. Aww. Before the new vengeance buddies get a chance to exchange friendship bracelets, a guard arrives. Jericho appears to consider yoinking the new arrival's body, but the guard is like, Hey pal, you better not yoink my body. My name is Paras, and I'm gonna bust you out of here. Oh, and also, the whole royal family is still alive. As they make their way to a nearby getaway vehicle, Paras explains that there are still a bunch of guys who are loyal to the old king, and that some of them snuck the royals onto an escape pod before their ship went kablooey. They are all safe, and are on their way to Okara. Hooray! As Paras delivers this exposition, he casually kills a few guards. Jericho is taken aback by this disregard for human, or, I guess to be fair, Tamaranian, life. He makes a point of non-lethally incapacitating the next guard they encounter. Paras is like, cute. Then he shoots the unconscious enemy in the head. Dang. Our hero's lethal liberator ushers them aboard a waiting spaceship. As they board, he's like, tell me Ender, I say, what's up? Then he gets shot by some palace guards. Bye, Paras! The shuttle takes off amid a flurry of laser blasts and plots a course for Okara. Meanwhile, as the royal family eagerly awaits the arrival of the freed prisoners, Reander turns to his sister and is like, Hey, Starfire, bummer about your getting married to a dude you don't love just to preserve our dad's reign just before he abdicated the throne. That's gotta suck, huh? Starfire is like, Yeah, it sucks, but what are you gonna do? Man, I sure hate my evil sister. Can't wait till I get the chance to murder the shit out of her. I can't believe she took Dad's throne. I hate her so much. Meander is like, Yeah, I guess. Whatever. I'm sleepy. Who do I have to sacrifice my daughter's autonomy to around here to get a nap? Damn it, Meander! A messenger brings the welcome news that Dick, Joe, and George Papadopoulos are safe and will be arriving soon. Coriander is overjoyed to hear that Dick is alive. On their spaceship, Dick, Papadopoulos, and Jericho prepare to beam down to Okara. Just before they go, the Tamaranian analog for Chief Miles O'Brien is like, Hey George Papadopoulos, tell your wife I say hi! Dick thinks to himself, Oh shit, that's right! Starfire got married! Damn it, Tamaranian equivalent of Chief Miles O'Brien! A few seconds later, when they teleport to Okara, Coriander and her new husband greet one another with the traditional Tamaranian oath of fealty and Dick has the realization that he has lost Starfire forever. Ouch. Also, it's his birthday. Double ouch. 
The Okaran warlords give the newlywed couple the customary wedding gift of a training montage in which they learn tandem fighting techniques. During this montage, they grow closer. I mean, not as close as they were when they combined into their version of Captain Planet during the wedding ceremony, but still, pretty close. Dick watches them with anguished jealousy until he can stand it no longer. He tells his buddies Joe and Reander that he's just fucking done and wants to go home. He goes and talks to Starfire and tells her the same thing. Coriander breaks down crying and begs Dick to stay, but the recent birthday boy is intractable. He tells her that now that she is married, they can never be together, and it would be better if they could just forget that they ever knew each other. Harsh. Starfire is devastated and shouts tearfully that she loves him. Her protestations echo through the hallways of Okara and seemingly last for days as Dick and Joe prepare for their journey home. After they leave, Coriander seeks solace in the arms of her husband. Damn! Ryander gives Jericho and Nightwing a ride home. On the way, Dick freaks out and smashes some hydroponic plant tubes. I guess Ryan found a shortcut to Earth, so it's a pretty quick commute. As the Tamaranian prince prepares to drop them off, Dick really lives up to his name, sniping at Reander impatiently. The prince takes it in stride and says that maybe he can come visit Earth sometime, because from what he's seen of our TV shows, it looks like a neat place. Let's see, this was 1986, so Perfect Strangers, Designing Women, Magnum P.I. Yeah, I guess the Earth seems pretty dope. Dick says something shitty, and Ryan exchanges a knowing glance with Joe, as if to say, Sorry, buddy, he's your problem now. Then beams the two Titans to their respective homes. Bye, Reander! Back on Earth, Cyborg, Beast Boy, Wonder Girl, and Terry Long are hanging around outside of a newly renovated Titan Tower. They're pretty bummed, because I guess Cole died during the whole Crisis on Infinite Earths thing. She did? Okay. Bummer, I guess. Bye, Cole. Gar asks Wonder Girl if she'll help him and Vic look for Steve Dayton, but she's like, Sorry, but if I don't write a paper for Terry, he says he's going to lose his tenure, so I guess I gotta go do that. Okay, first of all, I don't think that's how tenure works, and second of all, write your own damn paper, Terry! As Donna and Terry take off, Gar wonders out loud whether maybe they should just disband the team, seeing as nobody really seems that into it. Cyborg tells him to shut up, and Beast Boy says he was just thinking out loud. Meanwhile, at the Church of Blood headquarters, Mother Mayhem checks in on Arella and Raven to make sure they're still unhappy. They are, so she stops by the porch that is apparently reserved for Zack Wingman to pace anxiously on as he whines about his ennui. She finds that Zack is pacing anxiously and whining about his ennui. The pernicious priestess gives a little pep talk and tells the amnesiac angel that the reason he's experiencing existential angst is because he's just so darn special and important. Zack seems somewhat mollified by this and tones down the whining a notch. Well, maybe half a notch. Back at their midtown apartment, Donna and Terry are about to start writing Terry's paper when Jericho stops by for a visit. The couple greets the mutton-chopped Marvel warmly and informs him of Cole's recent demise. He tells him that he already heard about her passing from his mom and that he spent the night grieving for her. Then he fills Donna in on what went down on Tamaran and Okara. When Wonder Girl hears what has happened and how Dick has been reacting to it, she excuses herself and rushes off to console her distraught teammate. As she leaves, Terry moans about the fact that no one will write his paper on ancient Greek history for him. Poor Terry.
Man, what a whiny dick. Speaking of whiny dicks, a little while later in his apartment, Dick whines to Donna. He starts to lash out at his Amazonian pal, blaming her for the Titan's recent dysfunction. But Donna isn't having any of it. She slaps the self-pitying super sleuth around a little and tells him that, like it or not, she's not going to let him push her away, and they are going to talk things out. After they chat for a bit, a still somewhat angsty Dick Grayson heads to Wayne Manor to talk to his old partner slash father figure, Batman. After attempting to antagonize a concerned Alfred, a disheveled Dick heads down to the Batcave, where he finds that the caped crusader is about to embark on a mission with his new sidekick, Jason Todd. Dick is like, Hey Bruce, I'm going through some shit. Can we talk for a second? Batman replies, Oh gee, I'd love to. But me and the boy who replaced you are heading out to fight some crime. You know how it is. We'll catch up later. Oh, and happy birthday. I forgot about it, but I'll write you a check or something later. You can let yourself out, right? Bye. Gee, it's a good thing this is the March issue, because if it was a few months later... I'm guessing a certain bat-themed vigilante might be eating their Father's Day brunch solo. Across town, Beast Boy and Cyborg have finally tracked Steve Dayton down to a warehouse he rented out under the name of one of his deceased Doom Patrol compatriots. They listen in for a second and hear the volatile hat junkie reciting what appears to be shitty poetry to himself. Not a great sign. The two Titans discuss whether they should call for backup, but in the interest of expediency, they decide against it. Instead, the teens Kool-Aid man their way through the warehouse's window and confront the frazzled Freshmaker. Gar tells his adopted dad that he's worried about him and fears that the magic hat has driven Steve mad. Dayton is like, That's ridiculous! I've never felt better! If I wasn't perfectly rational, would I be able to blow up rats with my mind and maniacally recite a rhythmic doggerel to myself? Would I? Now hold still so that I can use my special hat to murder you teens! And with that, Steve uses the Freshmaker to release a blast of mental energy that all but obliterates his adolescent adversaries. To be continued. Man, not a great showing for dads in this issue. I kind of feel like someone should check in on Marf Wolfman to see if maybe he wants to go have a catch or something. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. And joining us once again via the power of electronic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, for the most part. Good. Let's see, did I do anything interesting? Oh, I repotted an aloe plant this morning. How'd that go? It's still dying, so I didn't make things any worse. Well, good job. Yeah, revolution of lowered expectations. What you been up to? Oh, this and that. I did read a comic book in which a lot of things happened. Boy, they sure did. You want to talk about it? I suppose we should. So, Corey, what do you think about this comic book? I enjoyed it, but I think I enjoyed it in a slightly reserved way because I had to read through it two or three times because I felt like I was maybe missing some things. There was a lot that happened in this, and I was also of kind of two minds on that. On the one hand, I was glad to return to so many plot lines that I was worried would just kind of get left dangling, and certainly a lot happens in this issue. 
On the other hand, I was dismayed because I have not yet written the synopsis or the previously in the Teen Titans for this, and good lord, I'm not looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah, maybe you can just talk about how the moon of Okara looks kind of like a poop. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. Oh gosh, Corey, how many beets are you eating? Oh, it's not red in my copy. Oh, it's like a purple magenta color that's striated in mine. Ah, uh, no, this one is shades of brown. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, either way, that is not healthy. No, like if you didn't go for a really long time. Yeah. How often do you eat beets and then forget that you ate beets? Dude, every... And get very scared. I, yeah, every time I think I'm dying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> we do, we do we still need to talk about the comic, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, at some point. So I will say this comic contained maybe the single most surprising turn of events that we have witnessed in this title. I'm talking, of course, about the fact that Terry Long has tenure? <laughs> well, it seems like his grasp on it is tenuous, which is not how I thought tenure worked. I thought once you had that, like, it was hard to get rid of you. That's what I think, too. So I think he might be on his last straw. We can move on to that later. I kind of organized my notes into two major sections. And the book is kind of split down the middle, too, between Homecoming, the stuff that takes place in space slash Okara slash Tamaran, and then the Earth shit that happens in Homecoming Part 2. So let's talk about the space shit first, okay? Mm -hmm. So it looks like Starfire is staying put on Okara. I did not see that coming. Well, things might not have gone that way if Dick hadn't acted how he acted. Yeah, I mean, kind of. At this point, it seemed like it was mostly a done deal. Like, that marriage, I mean, it's not just ceremonial. We talked about it last issue. They merged their bodies and souls, and it seems like they do have, like, a pretty strong bond now. So I think she kind of does need to stay with George Papadopoulos to an extent. And yeah, I gotta say, Dick, yes, he acts like a turd in this issue, but I felt like it's a little bit easier to take when the comic knows he's being a turd, and there are also extenuating circumstances that explain his behavior, and I feel like that's kind of what's going on in this one. Yeah, I agree, too. I just mean that the way in which he left really shut the door on any possibility of them you know as, as far as the reader can tell interacting in the future whereas if he had been like i love you too and this really sucks and i'm gonna go but you know just basically left on better terms yeah we could visit on weekends or something not saying that i would have behaved any better if i was in the same situation because it's fucking awful but you know he was just him's his usual self yeah i mean you're right he could have been more of a grown-up about it but uh i gotta say I felt bad for him for the most part in this, in a way that I don't always when he's being a dick. And I think a big part of that comes down to the fact that it was his birthday. And I was just like, oh, on his birthday? I know, Shit. It's so sad, the scene where like he's sitting there trying to party, but just looking so sad. Well, it also looks like everyone else is like having a feast and kind of partying down, and he's just off in the corner looking sad and is the only person holding what looks like a cup of coffee while everyone else is drinking and partying. Mm -hmm. So it did kind of give the impression that he was like, no, I'll be fine. I'll just have this cup of black coffee. 
you guys have fun. And the Tamaranians are definitely very emotional and very empathetic, but picking up on subtle cues doesn't seem to be their strong point. So I think they were maybe just like, okay, he says he's fine. He's probably fine. Let's rip it up, guys. Yeah. You don't know Earth people that well. That's true. Maybe that's how they like to party. Solemnly sip coffee in the corner. (laughs) I feel like that is kind of a Batman party. Like, maybe he isn't trying to be a jerk about it. He's just like, yeah, that was what we always did at Wayne Manor on my birthday and on Bruce's birthday. He would sit sullenly and drink coffee and then afterwards would say, yes, it was a remarkable festivity. I had a wonderful time. Yeah, maybe the so-called tapes that they have of Earth culture are just like beat era poetry readings. and That's their entire (laughs) um, view of culture on Earth. It could be. I mean, we'll talk about it later, but they may have just picked up recordings if they're into beat poetry of uh, Steve Dayton hanging out and talking to himself. Yeah. Although, frankly, if that's the tapes they have of Earth culture, I don't really understand why Ryander is so keen to visit. Another thing that Dick did, which definitely caught me by surprise, was he said the B word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe the first time that we've seen that used in these comics. I mean, certainly by one of the heroes. Mm-hmm. It was genuinely alarming to read that and was just like, whoa, shit got real. It totally reminded me of, did you watch the Transformers movie, the original one that had You Got the Touch in it when it came out? I can't remember in it bumblebee says the word shit like right after their spaceship blows up or as their spaceship is about to blow up and optimus prime is dying it's a pg movie so you get to say the word shit once but i did not see that coming from bumblebee and so like when that happened even more than optimus prime dying i was like whoa all bets are off anything can happen in this movie Mm -hmm. and it kind of gave that feeling to this issue to an extent as well Yeah, because it happens right at the beginning. Yeah, and it made me think even for just a split second, although I knew it couldn't really be the case, that maybe Starfire did blow up. Man, Dick is not happy with Princess Commander. And for certainly legitimate reasons, she has just blown up his, I guess now, ex-girlfriend and her whole family, as far as he knows. What I did think was kind of funny was it seemed like she was trying to be nice about it. Hmm. Like, don't get me wrong. She was very bad at being nice about it. But as she tells him that, she says, well, I mean, that's how I want to die. It's (laughs) I know you're probably pissed at me, but I would want to go out on national television with a nation weeping for me. I mean, obviously, I hope my death doesn't get orchestrated by me this way. But, uh, you know, it's a good death. And then later, I think it sounds like she's trying to console him with like, and hey, yeah, yeah, she's dead. But the good news is, you were the last guy she fucked. Huh? How about that, buddy? Yeah, but the fact that she says that after she's starbolted him into the floor and he's like whimpering and smoking. Well, I said she was bad at being nice, but it does seem like she is uncharacteristically, in my opinion, making an effort. What about the giant ha-ha-ha-has that she does as she walks away after you're the last to love her? Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha. I think she's just trying to lighten the mood, make him feel better there, you know? I think she's trying to say he's a bad lover. (laughs) I didn't get that from it, but 
Fair enough. I mean, that might explain why after Papadopoulos is just like, I will kill her. She is so fucking dead. Dick's like, you know what, Papadopoulos? You're not such a bad guy. I'm sorry I ever said anything mean about you. If you're in camp, kill this lady. Let's be friends. Yeah, it was a weird bonding time. It was. We see that King Meandar is basically still just like, fuck all this revolution shit. I'm sleepy. I'm gonna go sulk over here. Yeah, he's not displaying what I would think of as good leadership qualities here. No, he really isn't. And I honestly thought that Starfire was gonna give him shit about that. And it sounded like she started to, but then she just redirected it at Commander. Because, yeah, after he says, I'm tired. I fear my thirst for battle was sated many years ago. Starfire responds, I'm tired too, Father. Tired of seeing you disgraced by that lying witch. And I was like, oh, I thought she was finally going to say that she's sick of his shit. Mm-hmm. That was kind of disappointing. I mean, I get being upset, certainly, at Commander as well, but... Meander has been such a turd throughout this storyline, and I keep waiting for him to get his comeuppance. And I mean, I guess he gets deposed from the throne and his daughter tries to blow him up, but I kind of need the heroes to take him to task as well. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're going to see that happen. No, which is a bummer. But even though she doesn't yell at her dad the way that I wish that she did, Starfire does get a pretty cool training montage, where I think it's kind of a falling in respect with Papadopoulos. Uh, the wedding stick fight? Yeah. Yeah, that's a weird tradition. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was like a wedding tradition or if it's just they are undergoing retraining on Okara and they're learning to fight as a married couple. Like, I think that's training more than like ceremonial. I don't know. I, I see what you mean. But just in the context that it was presented, it did have this ritualized feel of like, okay, here's these sticks. You guys are going to fight for uh, a week. And then you have a couple days off to recuperate. Then you have to come back and fight together. But we're going to program these battle bots to kick your butt unless you fight as a team, you know? Yeah, I guess that might be part of the traditional Temerian honeymoon. I don't know what other honeymoon rituals they are taking part in. I kind of hope they're able to put off one aspect of consummating their marriage. Because as we see... Sound carries in Okara, because when she says goodbye to Dick and yells, I love you, at him, we see that sound just reverberating throughout the caverns of Okara for pages and pages, like in giant letters, to the point where, like, you see the techs working and, like, try to keep their heads down and do their transportation shit. Well, there is just this loud screaming, I love you, in sobs in the background. And it's like, man, that must be so awkward for them. I know, the one dude with, like, the goggles and the Van Dyke goatee is looking over his shoulder. He's just like, gosh, this is awkward. We can't say anything, but I am not loving this aspect of my job right now. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that that made me wonder, too, is, like, so they're going through with the wedding stuff, the maybe the stick fighting ceremony. They definitely said their traditional Tamaranian version of like ritualized, I love you, we're married now, when they greeted each other at first. Um, are they fucking? Because, I mean, like, if sound carries when she's saying I love you that way, 
is that maybe a reason that hastens Dick's departure? Oh, dang. Because that'd suck. Yeah, yeah, that would be a major bummer. No, I would say that they hadn't consummated the marriage, but after the way that Dick left, it certainly looked like things were headed that way. Yeah, it really did. There were a couple of things that didn't quite make sense about Joe's behavior on Tamarin as well. Like, why didn't he take anybody over when he was trapped in that jail cell? It didn't look like his vision was restricted in any way. I still don't think that the Tamaranians know about his, like, mutant power. It seems like he could have just taken over Commander's body when she came in to taunt them. Yeah, that's true. I wonder why he didn't. Um, it did look, though, like P- Paras was aware of it and was just like, hey, don't do that. I'm going to let you out. Yeah, but I mean, like, that would make sense if he's working with Starfire's family that they would have told him and that Commander wouldn't know about it. I wonder if it's harder for Joey to take over people's bodies on Tamaran because the people there don't have any pupils in their eyes, so he can't tell when they're making eye contact. He doesn't know where to focus. Exactly, because we saw that he had difficulty making eye contact before when he was tied up, and it was kind of easier for him to do it secondhand through Dick. Mm -hmm. So maybe he has issues with Tamaranians in that way. Like, maybe he's only got one shot at the mind swap thing, and if they're kind of looking the other way or, like, using their peripheral vision, he has no way of knowing. Like, you gotta look him right in the pupils. Uh Uh-huh. And he can't see where the pupils are, so that's pretty tough. Yeah. I wonder if the 90s were a particularly tough time for Jericho, because I feel like back then a lot of comic book characters were drawn without pupils. So the only other thing I wanted to bring up about the space shenanigans part of the book was on the trip home, Dick starts living up to his name, and all of the sulking, all of the whining, all of the... I have my feelings hurt and I'm lashing out. I was kind of okay with until he smashed the plants. I'm like, dude, those aren't your plants. I had that same thought. I was like, that's, that's you guys have to eat those, man. Isn't that where your spaceship food comes from? Yeah, space food or, I mean, I don't know what those hydroponics are, but either way, they weren't his. Or space weed. Yeah. Strong Tamaranian incense. Either way, not cool. no. Dick move, Dick. Mm -hmm. Any other space shit you want to talk about from the Homecoming Part 1? Well, just uh, not so much in terms of the the plot or the characters, but I was really into, and I know we keep talking about it, but just how super 80s-ified the science fiction style was with the drawings of the spacecraft and uh, the weaponry and then the, the uniforms of everybody. Yeah, were there specific examples? I th- thought that the uh, the spaceship that they used to get to the moon was just super goofy looking. It's like a giant sphere with a long skinny tube sticking out of it. And the, the sphere is like ostensibly the part where everybody hangs out and pilots the ship. Yeah, it's a very, it's such a simple and geometrical design that it looks almost like they were designing it to be made into a highly pixelated video game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that coupled with the uh, the color scheme, I feel like uh, obviously because it's space, there's a ton of you know dark backgrounds, but that's contrasted with uh, in in your copy, it sounds like our coloration is a little different, but there was a ton of 
like super bright, what I would describe as fuchsia. Yeah. And it was just a very super high contrast, which was uh, cool. Yeah, I think uh, Tamarin is just in general kind of a dayglow planet. And so all of their shit is that way. And then you get that contrasted with Okara where they do their warrior training, which is gray and moon looking. But yeah, I agree. It's a nice look. Okay, so let's get back to Earth and talk about all the Earth shit that's going down. All right. We touched on it earlier, but how the fuck does Terry Long have tenure? Dude, write your own damn paper. Seriously. And also, Donna, hello. Like, why would you not go help your friends with a super high stakes mission where somebody could get killed? Because you're like, no, I got to go help Terry write his paper. Well, okay. From Donna's perspective, I think at this point, Steve Dayton is an eminent threat, but not an immediate threat. Like, she thinks that Cyborg and Beast Boy are going off and they're going to find him. And then once they find him, then they'll all attack him together, was how I read that. So she's not helping them look for him, but she's going to be part of the fight once that's necessary. Yeah, I guess. It's just the fact that she's choosing Terry over her teammates, which, I mean, and they, they kind of, that's sort of the point I think they're trying to make with the issue, and it comes up a few times thematically, is that, you know, as relationships change and develop and, and people get older, it's it's hard on the team dynamic. Yeah, but, I mean, you were right about one thing, though. Terry is definitely way too into having Donna write his paper for him. And how did he get to be a tenured professor in the first place if he can't write a goddamn paper? He's a history professor who just spent a month living in the past and interacting with various historical figures due to that time warp thing caused by crisis. Yeah, no, he's just being a a total bozo because he's just like, oh, I don't need to take any notes because Donna will be here. Like, she'll always be here to be my, my reference and my resource. What a fuckwad. And not even as a resource, though. Like, it it doesn't sound like he wants to interview her. It sounds like he just wants her to write the paper for him. It's just intellectually lazy. It's disappointing. It's disappointing, and it also doesn't seem like it's due necessarily that soon. Because he says that he is an axe blade away from losing his tenure. So, like, well, okay, if you're going to use any kind of a knife metaphor, that's actually a wedge shape. You got some time, it sounds like. Yeah, also, like, nobody says it, like, that's like a razor's edge thing, right? Where you're like, okay, that's very narrow and sharp and scary. But when he used that axe blade metaphor, I was like, okay, which is it pointed, like, the long way (laughs) or the skinny way? I think it's the splitting mall end way. (laughs) He's trying to make it sound closer than it is. Hmm. that's, That's duplicitous. I don't care for it. No, neither do I. And also, the fact that he says that he'll lose his tenure if he doesn't publish soon. That is not how tenure works. That wasn't my understanding either. Once you have tenure, it's not that they can never fire you, but it's very, very difficult for them to fire you. So if he is close to the edge of it, it is not because he hasn't been publishing. I think there are some pretty serious scandals. Like maybe they were just like, all right, Terry, you can't marry any more of your students. And then he's like, okay. And then he marries Donna and then they're like, All right, well, now you really have to publish. Yeah, and I guess 
the other thing that seemed odd is the reason he's so invested in working with her on this paper is about her direct experience with the Greek gods. And so I get it. It's the DCU, like gods are a thing there. But it is hard for me to be like, that's not actually history. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, mythology. It's different, right? You'd think that would be different disciplines in some way. Like, I mean, it definitely is here, but you'd think even in the DC universe, I don't know, it's at least tied to theology. Yep. And then, uh, yeah, I, I get it, but I was disappointed by Donna's decision to go help Terry do that. But then I was also kind of amused that she right away, as soon as Joe shows up and is like, you know, Dick's in trouble. She's like, oh, never mind, Terry, I gotta go. Bye. Bam. And closes the door and she's out. Yeah. And then after Donna leaves, he turns to Joe and is like, maybe you can help me write my paper. And... Dude, you're not even going to acknowledge that he just found out that his friend died and he cried all night? Like, your paper is not the most important thing in the universe right now. Just write it yourself, dude. And, you know, not to belittle Joe, he's got a lot of experience, but he has <laughs> not much more than Terry in terms of interacting with Greek gods. Yeah, and presumably much less in terms of publishing in academic journals. So, bad call. How did he get to be a professor in the first place? None of the other professors are necessarily married to people who have first-hand interactions with mythological figures. Yeah, I think he's just been leaning on people his whole career. Ugh, what a douche. And we learn that Cole is dead. Yeah. So, there's that. Yeah, was that something that we saw and I just somehow forgot? So it references that it happened in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12. Okay. And I hadn't remembered that happening. So I went back and reread it, and I had to reread it like a couple of times before I found it happening. It happens in like one panel towards the end, and it's a little bit ambiguous about what exactly happens. But the main bad guy's forces are doing an attack. She's made a crystal shield to protect Earth 2, Robin, and the Huntress. And... At the end of it, the shield cracks and she can't maintain it. And from that, I think we're supposed to extrapolate that I guess she died, but I didn't catch it. And there are a few people that die in that issue. Like, we see that Dove of Hawk and Dove dies in that issue, and that gets, like, a full-page spread. Lori Lamaris, who was Superman's mermaid ex-girlfriend from the silver age gets like a full page of like whoa can you believe she's dead and yeah i think cole gets kind of a quasi off panel implied death which to be fair she hadn't been around that long and i don't think had established much of an identity for herself but there you have it wow okay so no more cole no more cole which, I get that Joe is pretty broken up about it, and it seemed like they were friends, but it does kind of also have to be a relief for him that she's not going to be constantly hitting on him. Mm -hmm. Which, the first time it happened, I was like, oh, okay, well, I, I appreciate that she's being, like, upfront and kind of direct in a way that's kind of refreshing in this. And then, subsequent to that, I was just confused because there was so much happening with Crisis and there were time jumps and crossovers where I felt like I was missing events that were happening, that it seemed like maybe their relationship had progressed off panel. But I don't think that was the case. I think he had rejected her and she was not taking no for an answer in a way that I maybe misread, but is pretty shitty. And I'm 
I'm sorry she's dead, but I'm not sorry that we don't have to deal with that anymore. Yep. We also get a little check-in on Raven and Arella and Zack Wingman and how they're doing in the Church of Blood. Man, Wingman is such a sucker. He totally is. Ugh. Why am I sad? Oh, it's because you used to be God's best friend. And now you're sad, but you'll be his best friend again. He's like, really? <laughs> that sounds great. So I just have to do everything you tell me and I'll feel better, right? And she's like, mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Dang. But for now, I get to still mostly just sulk, right? Yeah, that was pretty thin. Yeah. And also, the dealing with Raven and Arella seemed like a last-minute addition, maybe. Like, their inclusion in the story is that they're in the far background of one panel and are mostly addressed in, like, one caption as Mother Mayhem is thinking. So I was wondering if that was, like, a last-minute... Oh, that's right, they captured them, too. Mm -hmm. In that one caption where they are mentioned, it says that Raven has no idea how scared her mother is. So did she lose her empathy power? I'd wondered that too, if like that last situation she was in was just so draining that her powers got shut off. Or she was just like, ugh, mom. <laughs> just like <laughs> tuned her out. Yeah, I can see that being a defense mechanism. It's entirely possible. Once we are back on Earth, Dick is not handling things well. No. He gets an unhappy birthday part two when he tries to visit Batman. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that was cold. Yeah. He he goes in and Batman and Robin, the new Robin, Jason Todd, are having like a fun adventure. We're off to go rescue the governor's son and solving crimes in a way that was totally reminiscent of the Batman TV show mm -hmm. and like seemed really fun and kind of campy. And Dick shows up looking like he's three days hungover. Which really, for a comic book, all you need to do is not shave for a day, and everybody will be like, whoa, what's wrong with you? He also sticks his tongue out at Alfred. I don't know if that was just like a inking miscue, but did you catch that on? I didn't catch that. Let me take a look. It's where he's going in the door, passing Alfred. He looks like he's wearing like a Santa Claus jacket, kind of. Oh, totally. I think it's supposed to be kind of a sneer, but... It does. It looks like he is sticking his tongue out of the corner of his mouth at him. Mm -hmm. Well, he is being a dick to Alfred for no reason. Yeah, that's not cool. No, it's never cool to be a dick to Alfred. Alfred is great. Mm -hmm. It does make me kind of wonder. I often will go a couple of days without shaving. Does everybody just be like, whoa, what's wrong with Hub? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think so. You don't have the, the Dick Grayson, I don't know what you call it, image to hold up? I suppose not. But, yeah, he shows up and they're like, we're off to have a fun caper, no time to talk now. And Jason Todd's like, you probably had a great time in space. You'll have to tell me about all the space babes later. Bye. And then as they're leaving, Batman's just like, oh, by the way, happy birthday. I know, that was a real one-two punch. Unintentional, of course, but ouch. Ouch, indeed. We have a mebby count of three in this issue that is owing, I believe, entirely to Vic and Beast Boy's conversations. They're off in search of Steve Dayton, and we see that Steve Dayton is not doing so good. Not at all. He is a mess. 
he is a mess to the point where he is reciting bad beat poetry that he has written about John Constantine? Uh, it's the only thing that rhymes with drinking buddy minds. <laughs> I think so. Have I been saying his name wrong the whole time? No, that's just Mento taking artistic license. John Constantine, John Constantine, old drinking buddy mine, said evil's coming for me, time for me to now dine, John Constantine, John Constantine, what do you do to me, the shadows dragon mento, to burn in purgatory? Ooh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, that's a bad open mic. Yeah, Mentos is not doing so hot. This issue references the events that were happening in Swamp Thing at the time, and his talk of John Constantine reminded me of that. So I went back and reread uh, Swamp Thing number 50, and man, the Freshmaker gets put through the fucking ringer in that shit. It kind of makes sense that he's in the state that he is, and I think that was supposed to be what had driven him over the edge in the past few issues. It's weird because it also, it comes up a little bit in Crisis. And in Crisis, John Constantine is written really, really oddly. And so it would make sense if Marv Wolfman didn't understand how to pronounce his name. Because I think he just saw a Cliff Notes version of who John Constantine was and was like, okay, British guy who does magic. Because in Crisis, he acts like you would expect like an upper crust, serious, somber British mage to act rather than the kind of gutter punk sting looking dude that he is. Yeah. But in The Swamp Thing, that's written by Alan Moore, who created him. And dang, it's a story arc where basically all of the sorcerers have to fight against the greatest evil threatening the universe. And so Steve Dayton is the link between all of the mages and he kind of is able to use the Freshmaker suit to project himself there because it ends up being a combination of science and magic, which is a whole thing. But he ends up like holding hands with a group of DC magicians and like three of them, it's just the experience is so intense for that they just vaporize themselves and burn themselves to a crisp. And then the other ones still have to hold their charred hands to maintain the integrity of the magic circle. It is a super intense issue. It sees the death of Zatara, who is Zatanna's dad, which also brought to mind the fact that his name is Zatara because his last name is Zatara. And so Zatanna's last name is also Zatara. Zatanna Zatara is a fucked up thing to name a kid. Yikes. I can appreciate alliteration, but dang. It would be like if I named my kid Hullard. <laughs> Hullard Hubbard. Well, shit, now I kind of want to. I can always change it later once <laughs> they are 18. Yeah, good point. Or when they get emancipated. Right. See that 16-year-old Hullard. <laughs> Just like, all right, let's change this. I've had about enough of this shit. He keeps telling me I'm going to be a stage magician slash real magician. And that's not even a thing. <laughs> Damn it, Dad. Stop uh. making me wear a top hat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor child.
Well, if Hullard would listen and pay attention in his lessons, he could be the next Mandrake the Magician. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, Steve's had better days, huh? I would say so. Yeah, you sent me a picture of him after their, um, what would you call it? It's not a seance, but like a Saving the World hangout. Yeah. And man, he looked rough. He looks happy about, like, he looks that kind of his mind has been destroyed to the point where he's just like, uh-huh, everything's great. Now I'm going to do beat poetry. Yeah, and then a couple of panels later, you see literal foam coming out of the corners of his mouth as he has passed out. So I think that's the state that we find him in and what led him to, you know, trying to kill Beast Boy, which I think is a reasonable action, but also trying to kill Vic, which I am opposed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who'd want to do that? Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. So, Corey. Yes? Let's start this off by taking this party to the Bozone. What instance of one character calling another character a bozo? either literally or metaphorically, did you want to focus on? Oh, gosh, I am torn. I actually had three. The first one, which I appreciated, was Blackfire to Dick saying he was whimpering like a helpless drawer. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. The creature, yep. But the two favorite ones I have the toss-up between are, one, I think it might be page 25, and it's where uh, Dick refers to Mento as a Warner Brothers cartoon character and a creep, <laughs> which I think is like a pick your character. It doesn't matter which one, but that was the way I chose to read it. I, I think it was actually trying to say that, uh, you know, Mento's grasp on the consensus reality wasn't so good, but I, I didn't like to read it that way. So I chose to think of him as like Dick was imagining him like Yosemite Sam or um, <laughs> Bugs Bunny or something <laughs> saying, you know what a cartoon character that creep is. Yeah, he says, you know what a Looney Tune that creep is. So by that, he was saying that he is a creep, but also that he is nigh omnipotent the way Bugs Bunny is. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like uh, you're some kind of cartoon creep. Yeah, he's very, very dangerous. He can alter reality in unexpected ways. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like a Looney Tune character. Yeah, it's a scary creep. A very scary creep. But also a good singer. Yeah, I also I came down to a couple that I'm choosing from. Freshmaker Zing's uh, Gar, pretty good. That was one of them. He says, You're dirt, Garfield Logan. Trampled on, ground in, muddied, soiled, filthy dirt. So, ouch. I mean, not regular dirt, even. I know. And coming from Dad, too. That's got a sting. Extra harsh. Mm -hmm. I think we all remember the first time our father told us that. Well, it's just regular dirt hurts enough, but... <laughs> I know. When you add all those modifiers, yeah. ouch. Damn. So that almost was my favorite zinger in this. But I decided to go with a passive-aggressive zinger delivered by Reander as Dick is getting off the spaceship. As he is beaming Dick home, he says... I will pray for you, Dick Grayson, for your health and your sanity. Ouch! Mm. That is a very passive-aggressive way to say goodbye. 
It was a little bit confusing because we see that it's Papadopoulos's family that is from the southern states of Tamaran, but I feel like Reander totally just delivered a bless your heart to Dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he did. What was your favorite panel in this issue? So the artwork, like we said earlier, is really good in here. I liked all of the sci-fi stuff. I think, though, that probably one of my favorite panels is, I think it's on page nine, and it's one that we talked about earlier where Starfire did miss the opportunity to give her dad a piece of her mind, but it's the I'm tired too father panel Mm -hmm. where she's kind of doing the ballad, like double fist clench thing. But um, there's all these kind of uh, emotion lines at diagonal angles coming into the panel, and it's it's a pretty striking image. It's really, really well done, uh, and I think emphasized by the fact that she is still wearing her elaborate wedding makeup in that scene. It's, it's a very powerful panel, and yeah, like you said, Eduardo Barreto does an amazing job in this. Uh, we had the one kind of off issue, but the art is definitely back to feeling special, and Every issue does, visually at least, seem like a special event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good stuff. I think that Starfire one's my favorite. But for the backup, I had the one where Cyborg and uh, Beast Boy in the small monkey form bust through the window, Kool-Aid Man style. That is pretty dramatic. I liked that one as well. Yep. What'd you have? So my favorite came down to one. It is very well drawn. It is a very emotional panel, but it is also the one that cracked me up the most. And it is a panel that I call Sad Joey Flips the Wrong Birds. (laughs) He's so troubled. He can't remember which finger is the the bad one. (laughs) It's so funny to me. It is as he is explaining to Donna that he already knows that Cole is dead. And the caption work says, I cried through the night. So that is what I believe he is supposed to be signing. But he's doing it with his back turned to them, so it doesn't really look like he's doing sign language at that point. And he is just holding up his index finger on each hand. But when I first looked at it, it looks like he's super sad and he's just like flipping them the double bird. It's definitely his index finger, but he has his back to them. So I don't know why he's doing sign language to them at that point. I do not know ASL. And so he probably is signing I cried through the night there. And I do appreciate the touches that this book does where it tries to illustrate him using sign language and really developing that part of his character. But it really does just look like he's trying to flip them the bird and doing it badly and is really sad about that. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's so ingrained in our, you know, kind of like gesture at Lexicon that when you see two hands with two single digits exposed like you just immediately think it's it's the bird every time i look at the panel i'm looking at it right now and every time i do i initially think like oh shit he's just like fuck you guys yep i had the same reaction i had to stare at it for a minute and i was like nope that's the that's his his other fingers okay (laughs) all of the artwork was great i liked cyborg using his go-go gadget hand as a grappling hook um there was a lot of really fun stuff in here The whole thing was gorgeous, but for me, the clear winner is Sad Joey Flips the Wrong Birds. Yeah, it's a solid choice. Who did you have as your president of the drama club? What character acted, or rather overacted, in the most dramatic fashion in this issue? 
Oh, man, this one was close for me between Dick and Starfire. Yeah. Dick, I think, though, you know, though he was emoting a lot and did a lot of kind of passive-aggressive stuff, was just slightly muted from Starfire. And again, I am a sucker for the the double fist uh, power ballad thing, and she did that. Mm. So I'm going to go with Starfire. But the thing that really made me decide to go for her was the set of pipes that she has. She screams, I love you, so loud for so long and so many times that it makes everybody on the entire spacecraft super uncomfortable. Super uncomfortable, and at a certain point, just they hopefully, I guess, just don't even notice it. It's just background noise. Because it seems like that has been going on for days at that point. Yeah, it was something else, man. I felt bad for her. I felt bad for Dick. It was just it was a really super dramatic couple pages. It really was. I actually, I felt like they both had legitimate things to be very upset about. So I actually went with Terry Long for recentering all of the focus onto him and his relatively minor problem and deciding that nobody else had problems as big as him because he needed to write a paper. Oh, woe is me. I have to write a paper. I know your friend just died and, you know, your other friend had to witness his uh, girlfriend getting married and is kind of losing his shit. But uh, I have to write a paper a paper. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because his body language, starting on the page immediately after the one where Joey does the double knot birds, shows that this, you know, like when somebody's like shrugging with their, their palms up? Yeah. Like, there's nothing I can do. Oh, gosh, help me. Like, there's like four panels in a row where he's got this open up, upward facing palms thing going on. Yeah, just appealing to the heavens. Because there's no solution to this problem. And my deadline's close, pal. Real close. <laughs> a splitting mall length away. Ugh. I'm a mallet edge away from losing my job. <laughs> I'm a pallet away from getting <laughs> fired. I am barely two yardsticks away from losing tenure. I'm at least a 16-foot, 4 by 8 piece of lumber away. <laughs> I'm losing my tenure. Ah, oh, Terry. Terry, indeed. Nobody's as Terry as Terry. Mm-hmm. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your Aqualad and who was your Beast Boy? For Aqualad, this issue, let's start with the good news. I decided to go with Cyborg. I felt like his selfless action and what he deemed to be what needed to be done to uh, save his buddy Beast Boy while basically getting, you know, destroyed, severely injured at least, mm-hmm. by uh, Mento's beam was, was brave and, and selfless and just a all-around good heroing. You know, maybe not the best thought out, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, A for effort. Yeah, I actually went with Donna on this one. I think I might have felt differently about her if I had interpreted her sitting out the fact-finding portion of the Steve Dayton mission the way that you did, as that she was just sitting out the Steve Dayton mission. 
But because I thought that she was just going to let them gather information on it, I'm giving her a pass on that. Uh, and I think she displayed a lot of like pretty quality, tough love with Dick. Some good grief counselor Donna leaping into action there and being there for her friend, but also calling him on his bullshit. I decided to go with Donna. Yeah, I actually had her as my runner up. She didn't win it because I, I was still not impressed at her choice to go help Terry. But the fact that she did this kind of judo throw or something and just tossed Dick on his ass to try and get him to talk to her and trying to be a good friend, that tough love was impressive. Conversely, who did you have as your beast boy? This one feels like a bit of an easy out and almost kind of disingenuous because I don't know that I would have acted better necessarily were I in his shoes. But in terms of just being a jerk to everybody, including the people that are trying their best to help you, I felt like Dick took the prize. Yeah, I have written down objectively it's Dick and also those aren't your plants. (laughs) Yeah, that too. What's up with that? Vandalism. But it's his birthday. You don't get to vandalize on your birthday. That's not how it works. You don't? No. Oh, shit. (laughs) I've got some things to atone for then. Oh, boy. Some very expensive mistakes. (laughs) Indeed. Yeah, I decided to give him... I I don't want to choose him as the worst on his birthday. He is the worst. But uh, if we take him out of the running, then to me, it comes down to Beast Boy or Cyborg for not calling for backup. They say, oh, there's no time we have to do this now. We've seen that they have, like, beepers and shit. They have Teen Titan signals. They can signal, we're heading in, but come meet us here, shit's going down, to the entire rest of the team. And it would happen pretty much instantaneously. So I feel like that is a very bad decision, and we see how it affects them. And so it comes down to Cyborg or Beast Boy, Beast Boy's kind of taking the lead on this operation, and also the fact that in the event of a tie, worst Titan goes to Beast Boy, uh, I decided to go with Beast Boy. <laughs> I like that invent of, uh, in the event of a tie rule. I, I didn't remember that one, but I'm going <laughs> to put that in my back pocket for later. I think it's been implied for a while. Good enough. Were you able to find a timestamp in this issue? Was there anything in this issue that let you know the time period it was taking place during? Mine was a little bit of an abstract one, and it again gets back to, I think, the same thing that I used in the uh, the last issue of the New Teen Titans, which is 1980s technology being you know recast in a, a futuristic way. And the instance of that is, I think it's on page 21, where Ryander is talking about that he really wants to know more about Earth because the tapes that he's he's seen of it are really cool. I like that, too. It's like, are those Betamax or VHS? Like, what kind of tapes did you guys have in your 1980s future spaceship? I'm sure if it's a future spaceship, they're going with Betamax. It's got better resolution. Yeah, it's harder to record on, but uh, I think they're willing to go the extra mile on Tamaran. Yeah, they're more portable, slightly smaller. Right. So, yeah, the Betamax, Earth tapes. I think that's a good call. For my timestamp, I actually, I had a couple to choose from. Neither of them is that specific. They both call on things that came about a while before this, but I think reached their peak referenceability at around when this comic book came out. 
One was Dick saying that he felt like a carrot in a Cuisinart. Uh, Cuisinarts were introduced in the 70s, but I feel like in the 80s they were kind of synonymous with yuppie things that someone would own, like the same way you would reference quiche. You know what I mean? Right. So it was the point at which the the brand name became synonymous with the the actual, like, a food processor rather than uh, something else. Right. I feel like at any point before then, it would have been referred to as a carrot in a blender, you know? The other one is Beast Boy referencing Club Med, which I guess Club Med is still around, and it first came out in the 50s or 60s, something like that, the first resort that was owned by Club Med uh, started then. But 86 was kind of peak referenceability of Club Med, which is illustrated by the fact that there were two separate movies set at Club Med that came out in 1986. There was a theatrical release called Club Paradise, and then there was a made-for-TV movie that was just called Club Med, which featured Sinbad and Gloria Estefan. Whoa. Wow. So I feel like that's pretty peak 80s, and the fact that those came out at the same time as he made that reference uh, kind of counts as a timestamp. It's a little bit iffy because, like I said, both Cuisinarts and Club Med had been around for a long time at that point. But I feel like their place in the cultural zeitgeist kind of solidified and peaked right then. Yeah, good call. Thank you. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you feel were most noteworthy? Oh, man. Paras and his compatriots with their 80s sci-fi meets uh, all of the costumes from the He-Man series. <laughs> yep. Have, have got to be really high up on the list for me. I had that. But uh, what really stood out was after the scene at the party where Dick was sulking, drinking coffee, I think he either ripped the sleeves off of his outfit or took his shirt off and then put the vest back on over it and has this total like um, Street Fighter video game sleeveless gi top look. Totally. Just that was pretty badass. I like that look. Yeah, before that he had the puffy yellow sleeved shirt on under the vest and then he's like, "No, I'm going full Ken or Ryu here." Like I am too sad to wear this man blouse. Hadouken. <laughs> exactly. Harugat. For my favorite fashion, there were two that I really enjoyed. One is Dick's transient look. That he has five o'clock shadow, therefore he's probably drunk and definitely out of control. And the outfit that he wears, you described it as like a Santa Claus style coat that he wears to stately Wayne Manor. I just thought that was a very, very good I'm out of control look. It looks like he is wearing kind of a fur-lined winter jacket without much of a top under it. And I think that kind of drives home that he is not as put together as he generally is. It made me think of, I forget what they call it, but you know that thing they do in Portland and maybe other cities too, where a bunch of people put the Santa uniforms on and then go drinking? Oh God, SantaCon. And it is the worst bartending experience of my life. I can imagine. Did you, you didn't think of SantaCon when you saw this picture of him? I didn't, but I am now. And yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> Sorry. It, it is a, a, yes, a disreputable drunken Santa Claus, uh, which previously my go-to for had been Dan Aykroyd in Trading Places, 
But now I am just thinking of SantaCon. The other outfit that I want to focus on is the outfit worn by what I'm going to call like the cool, young, shaved space yeti who is driving them to Okara. Uh, he is, Sorry, that, that's... Uh, that's don't, do, don't do an internet search for that. <laughs> I'll be right back, huh? <laughs> no, Corey! <laughs> uh, cool, young, shaved, space yeti. <laughs> All right. But you know the guy I'm talking about, right? The pilot? Yeah. Yeah. And he's got a cool, like, Janet Jackson headset on that is gold, but mostly he's wearing, like, a king's sweatshirt, I want to say. Because it looks like he's wearing a purple sweatshirt, but that has, like, an ermine fur collar around it. Probably because he needs to stay warm because it's cold in space, and he maybe should have thought of that before he shaved. I think he's supposed to be one of the warlords of Okara, who, when we see them later, they've all got big fuzzy beards. They're generally kind of space yetis, and he's just like, he's got a Mr. Clean head and a, a bald face. Mm -hmm. So I think he needs an extra warm king sweatshirt. Yeah, I bet he shaved for Tamarin. Probably. Man. But now that he's in the, the cold coldness of space, he's got to put on his ermine-collared king sweatshirt, and... uh I think it's a good look. I think it's probably a mink. I, Ermine has the little spots, right? Oh, you're right. It's probably mink. Yeah. it's He looks badass, though, because, yeah, his headset and his mouthpiece and his little kind of bandolier thing all look like big, chunky 24-karat gold. Mm-hmm. Plus, he's got, like, safety goggles on. Mm-hmm. Gotta have your safety goggles. Well, Corey, I have but one final question I must put to you. Okay. Wapoo! In the year of our Lord, 1987, as we do go from the date of the reprint, and the month of our Lord, May, what was Aqualad probably up to? Wapoo! Yeah, so we're going to have to back up a little bit chronologically to set the stage for what Aqualad was up to and the, the result of what he was up to back just you know a month or so in april of 87 you remember when you're a kid and like maybe you didn't want to go to school or something and you would try and fake being sick oh yeah i was very good at it mm -hmm. aqualad could do a master class on this but so aquaman wanted him to clean the dome again oh geez and he's just like i don't want to do this and i he's like okay i'll do it later and then like went back in his room kept playing dark castle or something and then Aquaman came in again. It's like, okay, it's really time. And uh, and he pretended to be like really out of it and said, oh, I can't. I got a bad case of CFS, which he just made up on the fly because he was thinking cleaning fucking sucks. And so <laughs> he's like having a little chuckle to himself. And then Aquaman is really concerned. He's like, oh no, that sounds serious. What is it? He's just, uh, he didn't want to tell him his funny acronym. He said, oh, I'll, I'll send you the article later, but I just need to rest. I haven't been this worried about you since you got that case of the Dowanas last year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then, you know, Aqualad basically got on the phone to um, any physician he could find that, that would listen to him. And, you know, he did have a couple back issues of the, uh, the uh, Journal of American Medicine sitting around. And uh, so he's talking to this doctor, Dr. John L. Sullivan. And describing at length some sort of cherry-picked examples of uh, effects of a, a virus that's uh, called a Epstein-Barr virus. Oh, yeah. 
And they just sort of kept going back and forth. And, and Dr. John Sullivan and his colleagues found this pretty interesting. And uh, later that month, it's now May. So later that month in May, they published uh, an article in the Journal of American Medicine, which was the first time that the phrase or the description chronic fatigue syndrome was mentioned in medical literature. Ah. And that was because Aqualad had sort of dropped that in there while describing what he had learned about Epstein-Barr virus, which is chronic fatigue syndrome is believed to be a manifestation of. Excellent. So even through his chicanery, Aqualad somehow managed to end up contributing to medical science. That's our guy. It sure is. Unfortunately, the rest of what Aqualad was probably up to in May of 1987 was maybe a little bit less productive. You see, Aqualad swung by the Titan Tower to wish his friend Dick a happy birthday. But when he got there, Dick was being a total, well, Dick. And the rest of the Titans were also just kind of off their game. And Aqualad knew they had been through some shit, but he had been through some shit too. Aqua Girl had died during the crisis on Infinite Earth, but he was still trying to put on a good face and keep connected with his friends, and they just weren't making the same effort. So he was staying at the Titan Tower, and he was kind of, after a certain point, just like, you know what? Fuck these guys. So he had a little bit to drink, and then just started dialing 900 numbers. <laughs> He's like, you know what? I'm just going to ring up their goddamn phone bell. Uh, so he he called and talked to pro wrestlers on that 900 number. He called some sex lines. Probably asked to talk to some cool, young, shaved space yetis. And then he called some astrologers. And uh, I'm assuming he's an Aquarius. He called celebrity 900 number for Gene Dixon and got his horoscope read and... uh he was a little bit drunk. He started taking some notes on that. He called uh, <laughs> Paul Prudhomme and got some cooking tips. And so he wrote down some notes on that. And then he woke up the next day and was a little bit hungover and uh, got the notes for his cooking tips mixed up with his notes from the astrologer. And so he ended up with a note that is just like, oh, it says my astrologer says that uh, I got to put the rice on the water, because he had uh, learned that you needed to use a two-to-one water-to-rice ratio from Paul Prudhomme if he wanted to make rice to accompany his gumbo. Mm -hmm. But he thought that was from Gene Dixon, saying that as an Aquarius, he needed to put rice on water. So he called his friend, model Donna Rice, and booked her <laughs> passage on the cruise ship The Monkey Business. Oh, no. And... That led to, on May 3rd, reports surfaced that on that uh, ship she had met with Gary Hart and had had an affair. And a few days later, after initially denying the affair, Gary Hart dropped out of the Democratic presidential race. Because, of course, if you have had an affair, that's a huge scandal and you can no longer run for president. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bar morally for being a president is set very, very high. <laughs> uh, and that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Whew, what a month, what a year. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, man, just gotta lay off those 900 numbers, everybody. Is that even, that's, is that still a thing? I have no idea. 
Maybe? I mean, I know there's like that cameo thing where you can have a celebrity leave you a video message. Like the band cameo? Oh, yeah. You should get a cameo from Cameo. Those guys are fucking awesome. That sounds pretty good. Have you heard their early 70s funk shit? I think I only know of their funky music. Well, they did like word up and stuff. Their 80s more like hip hop influenced stuff, mm-hmm. which is probably their most famous stuff. But they started off being like a parliament style band that was very high concept science fiction influenced funk music that was telling stories and they have a song called funk funk from that era which is fucking remarkable all right i know what spotify and i are doing later oh i i think you'll like it but yeah no you guys should go get a cameo from cameo or if you don't do that at least watch the video for word up because lavar burton's in it and he plays a detective and it is bizarre and wonderful and a dang good song And a dang good song. So those are your action items. Anyway, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. I had a great time talking about this comic book. I'm not looking forward to writing a previously on or a synopsis of it, but that's my problem, not yours. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Oh, wait, that was for them. Okay. (laughs) Well, either way, it's not your problem either, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so a couple of ways. There is our post office box at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, you can contact us electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also all up in other avenues of the internet. There's the Twitter there's the uh, Facebook, link them up, uh, Sea Captains Only, of course, Tumblr, Instagram, uh, Grinder, which I assume is a sandwich delivery app. You know, all of the internet places. So you can find us there. If you can't find us on any of those places, why not uh, try looking inside your heart? If it's not too full of muscles and cockles alive alive oh then uh maybe you'll find us there hiding behind some shellfish that have for the sake of safety had their edges buffed down because safety first (laughs) yep i'm a little drunk oh you're a regular size drunk don't sell yourself short oh thanks that's big of you Corey. or regular size stuff yeah thanks If you would like to donate to the show monetarily, you can do so by visiting us at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. I've been making a ton of video reviews of classic comic books. I'm just about wrapping up my series of comic books with classic covers, and I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I've been really enjoying making those. I've been trying to average about one of those every day, because I know people like to have some extra content right now, but... You totally don't need to watch all of them, so don't feel like you're overwhelmed. They don't go in any sequential order. Just if you see a cover that looks like it might be fun for you to check out, check it out. There is also the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. 
What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. And there are some bonus podcasts that I've recorded with Corey. Uh, I think at least one with my friend Lee. Uh, there was one that I recorded with my niece and nephew where we watched the first episode of the Teen Titans cartoon. But there's a bunch of extra bonus material. And if you donate, you get access to that. But more importantly, it's a really nice way for you guys to let us know that you appreciate what we're doing and would like us to continue doing it. To that end, you guys have been so amazingly supportive, really since the inception of the show, but especially over the past month or so. And it really means the world to me. And thank you so much for those of you who have reached out and written to us and asked and made sure we're doing okay. And uh, yes, we, we are doing okay. And I certainly hope that you are as well. So, uh, yeah, th thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week with, finally, the conclusion of the Lunatic with a K saga, which I guess now is the guy whose name you can't say saga. But until next week, just remember, if those plants aren't yours, don't smash them. Don't do it. And happy birthday to everyone. But even if it's your birthday, don't smash those plants. No, vandalism's not okay on your birthday. Okay, bye! Bye. And they knew it.